to episode 355 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio. This week, we're doing things a little differently. But before we get to the differences, why don't we do some of the things that we like doing here that we've established doing? I love getting feedback. I've got some voicemails. Let's kick some of those off here. Let's start with this one. Hey, Derek. This is Steve Turk calling. Just to let you know, I enjoyed your last episode, episode 354, The Forgotten Horrors, with Michael H. Price and Michael Leggy, and of course with Derek Michael Cook. Um, really enjoyed it, but i got to say, Derek was killing me. are literally killing me. Just when I think I'm starting to catch up on stuff, you have to go and get Michael H. Price on there. And now I hear about these Forgotten Horrors books, which I didn't know about, and I have more books to read. And, of course, another podcast to listen to. Derek, you're killing me. There's not enough time in the day. You're coming up with all these great things and stuff like that and all these other podcasts and books. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Um, then the Mr. Dark Shadows deep dive. It's, it's, when I get out of it, I'm going to be looking at this chore list of mine that you put on there of books and movies and podcasts. And I don't know if I'm ever going to see the light of day again. But it's a good thing, because in darkness, the monsters are our friends. All right? Keep up the good work. I'll talk to you later. Bye. And you think you got it bad every time I have a guest on here, whether you hear it in the recording or not. I always walk away from that conversation with two or three different movies that that person brought up that I either don't own, haven't seen, haven't seen in a long time, or never even heard of. It makes my wallet scream, man. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, though, the Forgotten Horrors books are some of the standards. I love them. I don't have them all, but I've got quite a few of them here. And I know a couple, at least one is available for Kindle. So if you're an ebook reader, you know, that might be a a cheaper way to go. Yeah, however you get it. The Forgotten Realms books, solid work. And I really enjoyed having Michael Ledgy and Michael H. Price on the show last week. Check out the Forgotten Horrors podcast. It's good stuff. It's only once a month, so you're not adding too much more to your regular podcast intake. I hope. I hope. Hello, Derek. This is Dwight Kemper calling from the home of Rod Serling, Binghamton, New York. I'm calling to let you and your uh, listeners know that I am alive and well after what I thought I had, which I thought was a heart attack. But as it turned out, it wasn't a heart attack, but it was a panic attack, at least something like that. Anyway, they've given me medication. They've given me a clean bill of health. I can go back to the gym this week, and I'm also going back to work. So I'm alive, and I am well. And on another subject... I remembered the names of the television shows that uh, showed uh, presumption or the fate of Frankenstein. One of them was uh, uh, Victorian uh, Horrors by Christopher Freeling. Uh, 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 Christopher Freeling. Um, Nightmare, the birth of Victorian horror uh, that had a uh, reproduction of the uh, uh, play. And also great books. In Frankenstein, they also did a uh, reproduction of a scene from the play. So it was Great Books and Nightmare, The Birth of Victorian Horror by Sir Christopher Frayling. So uh, those who want to look that up, you can, they are available, at least they used to be available on VHS tape. So maybe they still are, I don't know. But at any rate, I'm alive and well. I did not have the heart attack. So all of you, take care and... 
keep monsterific. This is Dwight Kemper signing off. Goodbye. Dwight, my man, I'm so glad you're doing okay and you're still among the living. We mentioned last week, listeners, that Dwight's been dealing with some health stuff. Those of you who are friends with him on Facebook know that he was in the hospital and he's been dealing with It's just a mess. So, Dwight, thank you for calling in and letting us know you're doing okay. Uh, continue to keep doing okay if you can, man. And, you know, got to stay healthy. Got Monster Bash coming up later this year. Looking forward to running into you again and would love to have you on the show again, too. Just stay away from those hot attacks. <laughs> I can't do the voice as good as you can, man. All right. That's the feedback uh, that we got as voicemails. If you want to contribute to the conversation here and have your voicemail played on the show, all you got to do is give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Mention that again at the end of the show. That's also on our website at monsterkidradio.net. Okay, so what am I doing a little bit differently this time around? If you download the show through iTunes, you'll see that I marked the episode with a little E for explicit. And that's not because we're going to be swearing a lot or anything like that. But a few times, the conversations or the story you're about to hear um, might push it a little bit in terms of the uh, family friendliness that I try to maintain here on Monster Kid Radio. I try to make sure the podcast is available and appropriate for all ears, but every once in a while something comes up that, you know, mark the E, and that, that's just how it is. So just so you know. Now, the first part of this episode, you don't have to worry about any of that. Basically, you've got Monster Kid Radio's Year of Frankenstein, and then I'm going to transition into the movies that I saw this past weekend with Chris McMillan and Dominique Lamsey's. Uh, the first part of that conversation about King Kong, it's cool. But after that, when we start talking about Vampire, which is the other movie we saw this past weekend, towards the end of that, things get a little more, um, well, E-tag-worthy. After that conversation about Vampire, then we're going to transition to a story that is written by Dominique Lancey's. It's called Bad Ritual. It's really good. And she actually recorded a reading of it for us. And I'm going to play it here on the show as well. Uh, that's a lot of fun. But again, towards the end, well... Anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. It's a really solid show. Very entertaining conversations with Chris McMillan and Dominique Lamsey's. A great story by Dominique. And that's all happening right after this. Paramount Pictures presents a dual, ghoul, double, scream show. Scream number one. Frankenstein and the monster from hell. See the eeriest transplant in the history of horror. His brain came from a genius. His body from a killer. His soul came from hell. It's the newest and most frightening Frankenstein ever filmed. Scream number two. Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. The only man alive feared by the walking dead. Born the night creatures and the black Captain Kronos is here! Frankenstein and the monster from hell. Plus, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, all shot. In color, both rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. Now scream! On the whole face of the earth today, there is no place more terrifying than the Valley of Guanji. In Technicolor. Look! It's coming! What is it? Where did it come from? 
Monster attacks San Francisco. Golden Gate Bridge ripped from towers. Skyscrapers topple. Our city may be next. See Columbia Pictures. It came from beneath the sea. The original Universal Frankenstein film came out in 1931. In 1935, on April 22nd, the sequel to the film was splattered across movie screens across the country. I'm talking about Bride of Frankenstein, directed by James Whale, who directed the first film. His growth as a director is obvious. It's evident from 1931's Frankenstein to 1935's Bride of Frankenstein. On top of that, and I'm going to touch on this here a little bit later, we all had a little bit more pull with the studio. So when you look at Bride of Frankenstein, despite the fact that you've got Karloff in the Frankenstein's monster role and you've got Colin Clive returning, they sometimes do feel like different films. In fact, you could start off with Bride of Frankenstein. If you're trying to get somebody into the Frankenstein films, you could start with Bride. Make sure they see Frankenstein, of course, but Bride of Frankenstein is a sequel that's good enough to stand alone on its own, and some might even say it's the best Universal Frankenstein film and surpasses the original, which, as you know, we don't normally see with sequels. Now, if you follow me on Facebook or have been paying attention on Twitter, or I guess I've talked about it over the past few episodes here on MKR, I'm launching a YouTube channel. Monster Kid Radio on YouTube is what I'm calling the series. I know, it's a super creative title. Earlier today, the day that I'm recording this, I uploaded the first video of the Monster Kid Radio on YouTube series, which features me and Chris McMillan going to see Bride of Frankenstein at the beginning of January. So we talk a little bit about it in that YouTube video. I'm going to recommend you check it out. Just look up Monster Kid Radio on YouTube, and I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. But after we recorded for YouTube, we also sat down and recorded for the podcast proper. This is what happened. I am currently in what Chris just called the Monster <laughs> Kid Radio Mobile. Uh, I'm going to turn up the volume here a little bit so you guys and gals can hear me. We just got done seeing Bride of Frankenstein at the Kiggins Theater in Vancouver. It was a free showing. They were doing a fundraiser for a local child with leukemia. And, uh, you know, Chris kicked in a couple of bucks uh, for both of us, which was awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, that is Chris McMillan from The Shadow Over Portland. And if you are subscribed to the YouTube channel, you will have already seen us talking a little bit about our experiences. But because we're doing the Year of Frankenstein on MKR, I wanted to get some audio and just talk a little bit more about Bride of Frankenstein. This will be going out... Uh, the fourth episode of the year, fifth episode of the year, depending. I'd have to look and see where this falls. <laughs> This is the first time you saw it on the big screen, man. Yes, it is. So good. I know. Um, like I was saying in the YouTube video, I mean, I, I literally didn't want to blink. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I see these movies, you know, I've seen them all, you know, I, you go see Creature, or, you know, in the theater and it's just amazing, even though you've seen it, you know, hundreds of times on home video or, or on TV stations, it's the same thing with Bride. I mean, my... My God, it's a beautiful movie. It's, I mean, wow. <laughs> it's pretty gorgeous. I mean, I, yeah, I just can't get over how good it looked and how much, you know, and I think that's part of it, how much you kind of miss 
when it's on TV, even if, unless you've got, you know, like a home theater that fills a wall, mm -hmm. you don't get the same impact. You know, these, these movies are designed to be seen on the screen. And while, don't get me wrong, I'm not getting rid of my DVD collection. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm not getting rid of my home video stuff. But anytime you get a chance to see this on the big screen, any of these movies, go, mm -hmm. run, hurry. So this was a digital projection, which we, we yeah. kind of knew going into it, and that's fine. You know, I would have preferred film just because that's my preference, but I think we're pretty lucky that Universal has spent the time and money to uh, at least put these on Blu-ray, uh, maybe doing a little bit of cleanup. I haven't watched the Blu-ray of this yet, mm -hmm. so I don't know how it looks, uh, but I do have it on DVD. Actually, do I have it on Blue? I think, whatever. <laughs> even that said, you see it on the big screen, you get to see details, you get to see Colin Clive in the castle, even though he already left the castle, just yeah. a little bit more clear. But what I was taken with the most was the sets. Mm. Oh, Gorgeous yeah. sets. And they're gorgeous in Frankenstein and they're gorgeous in Dracula and daughter of Dracula, or Dracula's daughter, excuse me. But there's something about the way Whale and his cinematographer move that camera around that set. There's a couple of moving shots that uh -huh. are just gorgeous. And you were mentioning in YouTube the editing during the creation sequence. Oh, my God. It just, it's beautiful. But, I yeah. mean, having seen it on the big screen, I'm just sitting there going, wow. All the Dutch angles that they were filming oh. at and, 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 and all the electricity yes. and the buzz and, and the panning up this, what? three-story set to this top where they've got... It was insane. ...fry there. It's like, wow. It was insane. Yeah. I'm just... You're just watching this going, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm a big, big fan of this movie. So I think seeing it on the big screen also serves Dwight Fry a lot better. Oh, yeah. Um, we love Dwight Fry. I'm a huge fan, and I oh, love yeah. him as Renfield and Fritz. He's Carl in this, which kind of fills a similar role... But I feel like if you see it on a smaller screen, sometimes he gets a little lost, a little muddled in the background. Uh, perfect example. I did not realize he was in the forest when they captured the creature. Oh, okay. It, it was like, oh, that's Carl. You know, but nice. but it's something you you know you might not catch on TV, and it's not because of formatting or anything. It's just you know it's a it's smaller small. picture. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, Dwight gets some screen time, and he's great. Oh yeah. Um, I wish he did more genre. I did he wish he lived longer to do more films. Yeah, I mean, I don't care what type of film. Just yeah, just yeah. Wish he was yeah. Wish he had been around longer. So, question for you. Okay. The rumor, the word is that Karloff was really against the monster speaking. What do you think? Did it work for you? Should he have not spoken? I think it worked. I think it. You know, it worked. I can't see how they could progress the story or at least this story, any further without him talking. Um, they kept it very simple. They kept it so that, you know, it wasn't like he was suddenly a very eloquent speaker. Um, <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I don't have a problem with him talking in this film because, you know, you had to have those last lines. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think they could have done it without it, without the dialogue, but when he's, you know, the look on his face and when he says, she hate me, you know, that's like a gut punch to yeah. everybody in the audience. Mm -hmm. You could have done it without dialogue, but it works so much better with it. I think Karloff is a good enough actor that he could have done this. Oh, definitely. Mute or with a, you know, he could have done that. But I, I'm in favor of the dialogue as well. 
Uh, I think you get some good moments with him and the hermit with the dialogue. Oh yeah. And yeah, I think I think the words work. The dialogue works. So he would be mute again in uh, Son of Frankenstein. Well, not necessarily mute, but just not, not capable full, yeah. of speech. But, you know, and, and the thing is, you are right. I mean, you watch the earlier scenes before he gets to the hermit's uh, cabin, mm-hmm. and it, it comes once again. Big screen, folks. Go see it on a big screen because <laughs> yeah. his face fills the screen and you can see in his eyes the hope to find someone who would just just, just accept him and the agony and anger that comes with him being rejected constantly. Um, you know, it's like... It, 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 and here's, you know, I mean, okay, the hermit scene. I, I think I said this on... I think I did this on MKR, where it's kind of hard for me to watch it without thinking of Gene Hackman. Right. Um, in Young Frankenstein. No problem here, because by that point, it was like, oh, he's found his friend. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, yeah, the, seeing that on the big screen, I mean, it it really worked because you could see Karloff's performance. You know, his hopes dashed to find someone who would just say hi and not scream at the sight of him and then this person he walks into this person's life oh yeah beautiful i'm sorry i'm no i'm it's, off <laughs> no it's it really is a touching scene and and uh you know on the big screen i've seen this on the big screen before i don't know if i noticed or if it registered the tears yeah, Frankenstein's monster cries a couple of times, and I, I like I said, I, I may not have just registered it, but it's touching and yeah. it's moving. And oh, Karloff, oh, you were a master, man. Yes, oh man, and James I, Whale for doing. I mean, I need to see more James Whale. I really do. Yeah, I think I think I do too. Um, What's really you know? I mean, okay, here's here's one of the downfalls if you're going to be really picky about seeing things on the big screen certain things will stand out yeah um there are scenes on the top of the castle towards the end where you can see that the actors are superimposed on a miniature during the end yeah yeah. especially and that's fine i don't care you know it's all right didn't take me out of the story for very long because it's like but what i was getting at is pretorius's homunculi (laughs) is that the yeah yeah um those <laughs> effects were brilliant. Really but, good. Oh, they you don't even st- uh, the matting was so good in those. The, there was a point where he picks up the king with the tweezers to pull him away. Uh that sequence of all of them could have looked the worst because you're doing action both the little and the big person, but But it pulled he, they pulled it off. The it editing, looked, yeah. <sighs> I, I was because um, I was like, oh, here they, you know, because I've seen it on, you know, on yeah. a small screen, and it's like, oh, here they come. It's going to be really, wow. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you're right. I was worried. You know, it does look a little. There's off, a little bit, but it's still not it's enough still, to. No, yeah. it's not enough, and it still looks so good. There's no bleeding on the edges. Yeah. I, it, it, you know, so like I said, you know, sometimes maybe, but not in that sequence. Wow. So you mentioned Pretorius. Oh. Well, I mean, the man was a G. I need to see more of his films, too. Yeah. Because he's great in The Old Dark House. 
um, and, and, and Pretorius, man, uh, the shots he were talking about, the Dutch angles and the weird angles and all that, with the stark lighting and the, the light and the shadows and coming out of the crags of his face. When oh, he, God, oh. They, yeah, they, they did mm. the shadows on his face. They, they used the shape of his face and how the shadows fall on it to amazing effect. Yeah, and he's great. Oh, oh, he is he is wonderful. The, the, the disdain that he has every time he has to talk to Elizabeth. Uh, oh, and yeah. I, you know, I, I know I say this every time Bride of Frankenstein comes up. It's such a subversive movie. It's, it's about two men trying to create life, reproduce without the aid of a woman. Whale was homosexual. Uh, there, there's a lot of really subversive things for the time happening in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Thesiger <laughs> basically comes back as a scorned lover for Frankenstein. <laughs> if, if you want to read into it, you can. You can. You can see that. And, and, you know, Frankenstein doesn't want anything to do. He's like, no, 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 until finally he succumbs. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too, I don't know, there. But <laughs> it's there. Yeah. Well, what, what's also amazing is... is how Whale swings on religion in oh, this film. Oh, man, yeah. Because there's the scene where, you know, in the hermit's cabin, where, you know, Frank, the monster has a friend now. And there's uh-huh. that real brief, you know, where the where the symbol of the cross stays on as they fade to black. And then uh-huh. the next ten minutes later, it's into the monster being mad at the world and the god that allowed him to be created you know there's 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 yeah he, it swings a lot when they tie him to the post to bring him oh up. yeah i mean it's very crucifixion like and then the one scene where he goes underground to meet up with pretorius and all them he knocks over the lid of a tomb and the cross is right there, right there. and it's like he's rejecting the cross walking down, down. which I mean, in Christianity, bound is not where the cross hangs out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you have that as well, and it's just, it's really neat. And, and the cross is another one of those things that really, seeing it bit, seeing it on the screen really hammers it home. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there in the in the TV version, but I'm like, oh, that really is a statement, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's, a, it's yeah, it's, God, I'm, it's a classic. Really good. Um, I, I, we were talking about this. I think it's the best of the Universal Frankenstein's. I uh, really do. I, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm still there. Yeah. It, it, it edges out the original just by a bit, but I think that's like you said because um, Universal gave Whale just, just carte blanche on this and went said go for it. And I don't, I think like your uh, Batman Returns analogy it goes. I don't think they got what they were expecting. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I think Whale kind of. I mean, he forced them to accept his... He's like, I'm not going to do it unless you let me do this, 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 and this. And, and good for him, and I'm glad he pulled that off. Um, Una. Una O'Connor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's an acquired taste. I didn't find her as grating this time, but I think I'm starting to get worn down. Um, but you know she's in the very beginning of the movie, too. Yeah. The maid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or not the maid, the dog person. And I, oh, yeah. I, I see that, and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I didn't notice that until this time? I saw it today, because it's like... Wait a minute. That's that's who. That's, that's Minnie. Yeah. yeah, it's like that is, and the, and she's basically playing a servant in the yeah. the tale. So that was I was like, that's brilliant. You know what I need to do is create a card for the classic five. Do you prefer <laughs> Una O'Connor in Bride of Frankenstein or The Invisible Man? Ooh, that, that would be a tough one. That that probably like to be a black series card or maybe a Universal series card. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's a deeper cut. That's, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. And I'm not going to ask you to answer it. Thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to put out my fan theory. I think I've mentioned this on, I don't know, have I mentioned this on the podcast? I don't know. My fan theory is this movie starts with Mary Shelley telling us the story of Bride of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which is a direct continuation of the first film. So therefore, the first film is also part of the story being told by that Mary Shelley. This Frankenstein continues and meets the Wolfman and Dracula. So, in my head, therefore, this Mary Shelley, played by Elsa Lan- oh, who's amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, she is the one telling the entire universal monster cycle. At least the first three big ones. The Dracula, Frankenstein, and Wolfman. Because they all connect. And I guess technically the Invisible Man, because he shows up sort of at the end of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So, you know, therefore, you know, that's my, that's my fan theory. My head canon. I'm perfectly fine at living in a world where that happened. <laughs> no, I just have to find a way to link the mummies and creature. creature. And maybe Phantom? Kind of depending on you what Universal's doing. I mean, if she told Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, maybe she told Abbott and Costello meet the mummy. Oh, I mean, they're different characters, though. Oh, oh but, but, but Abbott and Costello go through the whole thing. Abbott and Costello, well, and, and in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there's the Wax Museum, and they see the Frankenstein monster in there, which is the universal Frankenstein, the traditional. Hmm. Okay, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> All right, so are we getting some Jekyll and Hyde in the mix now, too? Yeah, see? Okay. That'll work. We're and a couple of movie geeks. You yeah, know that, right? yeah. And <laughs> once again, guys, go see this on the big screen. Yeah. Elsa, uh, Elsa. Oh, God. Elsa. Oh, Elsa. The, well, the looks she's giving as, you know, oh, Byron is talking. I mean, they come across so much better. I mean, yeah. some of her looks are like really devilish. Yeah. It, oh, Oh, yeah. Fabulous. Well, and the way he's trilling his R's, too. Oh, you're, yeah. You're just showing off now, buddy. Yeah, and she's just <laughs> kind of like, really, I ain't having any of that. The movie's great. The movie's gorgeous. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, if you ever have an opportunity to see it, of course, go see it. I think it's a vitally important part of the Frankenstein mythos that has evolved over the past 200 years. There's a reason why the bride is such an iconic character, oh, even though she only shows up for a few minutes at the end. And it's just a wonderful film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Chris, thank you for doing this. Shout out over portland.blogspot.com. Thank you for having me. From the spine-chilling world of the living dead comes a never-to-be-forgotten combination of motion picture thrills. Two great new terror hits on one sensational program at your movie theater. Horror of Dracula. Plus, the thing that couldn't die. Horror of Dracula. Dracula, the terrifying lover who lusts for human blood. Dracula, the human vampire who rises each night from his coffin bed to seek the rendezvous that alone can keep him alive. Who will be the bride of Dracula tonight? Horror of Dracula. All new and in flaming Technicolor. Plus this second thrill hit, the thing that couldn't die. What is it, this head that lives without a body? A monstrous thing that enslaves every woman, destroys every man who stares into its eyes. See both on the same show. Horror of Dracula and the thing that couldn't die. Warning, Godzilla versus the thing. A shattering motion picture, not for the weak of heart. Here in all its astounding realism is a soul-shocking experience. How much terror can you stand?
What was this thing of unbelievable and unequaled terror that challenged Godzilla to a battle of unhuman strength versus supernatural evil? Godzilla versus the thing. See the war of the giants. See the birth of the world's most terrifying monster. See armies of the world destroyed by the thing. The producers of Godzilla vs. The Thing issue warning to those who cannot take its full horror. To you with guts, you must see Godzilla vs. The Thing from the beginning in color scope from American International. You will freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atom Age Vampire, you will flame for the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance. As tragedy forever mars her loveliness. Leaving her to face a world of terror. I give you my word that I will restore your face. Restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the demented doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence. But to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. I'll transplant directly from another human being. A mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A sadist, a criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. <laughs> Fire a volley through the window pane. You will gasp as lust and madness stalk the dark and screaming night in Atom Age Vampire. This past weekend at the Northwest Film Center here in Portland, Oregon, there is a triple feature. The first film and the last film in the triple feature were bonafide classics, monster movies that I knew I had to see on the big screen, especially since the first film was in 35 millimeter. It is the original. Man, it is King Kong. And I love this film so much. And to see it on the big screen was a real treat. King Kong. The horror picture of all time. Don't let him get a beautiful girl torn from the arms of her lover by a jungle beast. Ah! King Kong. See a battle between prehistoric monsters on an island time forgot. A nightmare jungle creature from the primeval past stalking midnight streets. My baby! It's got my baby! See the thrill classic of all time. The biggest gorilla picture ever made in motion picture history. The jungle epic that can never be duplicated. See RKO's original... King Kong. King Kong. King Kong. Of course I brought my portable recorder. And Chris McMillan was there. Chris McMillan is pretty much every part of this episode. And that's awesome because he knows his stuff and loves King Kong just as much, if not more, than I do. After we watched King Kong... We had this conversation. We are hanging out outside the Northwest Film Center here in downtown Portland. I feel like I've been to this theater a lot more lately because they keep bringing in some cool flicks and I get to see them with some cool friends. Um, 
And, and Chris. <laughs> Very, no. I was waiting. I, I knew something was coming with that setup. Nah, man. Chris McMillan is here as well. And today was an, an odd day. They showed King Kong, mm-hmm. which had nothing to do with the next film, which was a documentary with Hitler. And has nothing to do with the movie we're waiting to see, which is uh, Vampire. Yeah. I think the last time I saw King Kong was with you at the Hollywood. It was. It was. <laughs> we saw it at the Hollywood Theater, what, two years ago? It's been a while. Yeah. Now, was that a film print or was that Yes, digital? that was also was 35. Film? Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because this was a 35 millimeter print and I thought, I mean, I, I don't want to see this movie any other way. Yeah. I, mean, I, I Okay, I like the fact that I have it on DVD at home. I really do. But, I mean, if I can see it on the big screen, yeah. If I can see it on the big screen in 35 millimeter, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I don't even own this. I don't have a copy of King Kong at home. I Where's I, your Monster Kid card? I know, right? <laughs> I, I want the Blu-ray. And, okay, oh. I'll take it back. I'll see it on blue. I want the blue. But, mm-hmm. man, I, I feel spoiled that I've had a chance to see it. It's a film. It's a 35 millimeter print, twice now in the theater. I know. Isn't that great, though? I mean, yeah. yeah it's 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 really it's yeah. It's one of the reasons I hang around Portland. <laughs> so we were talking earlier, and I mentioned Shape of Water and, and something. Oh and, yeah. And I said they can't all be perfect movies. And what was your response? My response was, well, yeah, there is no such thing as a perfect movie, except for King Kong. <laughs> Because if you look at the way this movie is paced, it really, you know, I mean, it. there's never a dull moment. Yeah, that's I mean, true. There's a little bit of setup in the beginning, but... It, you, you need that. It, yeah, and it snaps, it moves, you know. You don't have to wait hours for Kong to show up, but everything is told really quick, really fast, but very clear. It's, it's yeah. it, you. There's nothing missing. It, it's... I think one of the best-paced action movies to come around, you know, I mean, one of the best-paced. Uh, no, I'm going to say the best-paced. Well, and especially you consider the time in which it came out. This movie came out in the early 30s. Um, there's nothing really to compare it to outside of maybe some of the things that Marion C. Cooper was doing in the silent days mm-hmm. with grass and things like that, which parts of this movie are kind of autobiographical in that regard. That's what I've heard. You know, with, with the... Uh, the Carl Denham character, who I love. There's, yeah, uh, I don't care who you get to play Carl Denham. It's not going to be any... Robert Armstrong owns that character. Yes, yes. Just flat out owns it. There's there's something about his pattern, his delivery, his... I know, he's witty, he's snappy, he's great. And, I mean, it, all the characters are, all the actors are. Yeah, and but but... Armstrong comes across like you would want Denim to come across, yeah. like like a s- circus ringmaster, yeah. <laughs> just this flamboyant, bigger than life person who's just just you know always enthusiastic, yep. always just yeah we got to do this, we're yep. going to be millionaires, boys. Well, and even in his costume choices, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> when he's doing the we're, we're millionaires, let's go get them, guys. His costume, his his clothing is. Uh, I was going to say distorted. That's not the right word. Um, it's messed up because he's yeah. been in the jungle and all that. And he's got the sleeves kind of ripped down to the cuffs, but the cuffs are still intact. <laughs> so he's kind of got like this billowy arm thing going with his shirts. And, I mean, that's very kind of, I don't know, dramatic and theatrical. And, oh, yeah. And then yeah. the next next scene he's in, he's got he's in a tux and top hat. Yes. I mean. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah. Oh man. It's it's a, a solid film, and, and I've seen you know Kong Skull Island and the '76 remake between the last time I saw it and this. And yeah. I mean, this one really is the end all be all. It's very well structured, well written, well performed. Faye Ray. Well, yeah. What can you say? It's amazing. In mm-hmm. this. Yeah, oh, I mean, for so someone good. who's who's basically spending most of the movie reacting in horror and screaming, she's just does a great job. I mean, yeah. Well, she she really looks scared. She does, but the few times when we get the the back and forth, yeah, the almost screwball romantic comedy dialogue, not the actions, but the dialogue between her and Driscoll. That's wonderful. Yeah, she's good. She is really good in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's easy to forget just based on all the action that happens in the middle and end part of the movie that she actually did pull off some really good acting moments. Yeah. Um, you know, very nice, subdued, well done performances. You know, from everyone involved. Yeah. Except for Robert Armstrong, who's just going way over the top, but works it like a pro. Right. Now, I have seen The Most Dangerous Game since. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I could totally see set pieces uh, in the jungle from oh, The Most Dangerous Game. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, okay. Okay, there's the ledge, there's the cave. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, which is fine. I mean, you sure. know, hey, yeah, um, great way to test it, you know, just yeah. be filming one movie and then film the next one. Yep. You know, there's, if you haven't seen King Kong, I mean, what what are you doing? Go but see King Kong. There's not much more we can say about King Kong that hasn't been said, I don't think. Yeah, I think we talked about it uh, last time we saw yeah. it, so I think we pretty much, yeah. Okay, but what are we seeing now? We're seeing Vampire, which is a silent film. Uh, is it German? I, I remember it being like, there's three, it involves, you know, a cast and crew of from three different countries, which is why it's silent. It's 1930s. They could have done it in sound, but, you know, language barriers and all, they pretty much did it silent. I'm not really... I think it might be German, but I'm okay. not really positive. This is one of those movies that I saw a long time ago. I'm looking forward to yeah, seeing it again. and I've never seen. I mean, I, I've seen clips on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it turns up in all the Mill Creek sets. It's public domain, yeah. right? But those transfers are so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and... I just never really gave it a lot of thought. But I'm, I'm told it's really good. I'm really excited to see it. It is very good. I'm, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it. I'm afraid I'm going to like it so much I'm going to want to get the Criterion release. <laughs> yeah, just what... Yeah, I know. It's another one of those... Jeez, gee, <laughs> just what I need to spend more money on. So wait, wait. So what should I buy first? The King Kong Blu-ray or the Criterion release of Vampire? Let's wait until uh, okay, after the okay, movie. Because, okay. uh, like I said, it's been... its Oh, man, it hasn't been years. It's been at least a decade since I've seen this. Oh, so, wow. uh, yeah, let's let's come back and talk about that after the movie. Sounds good. Wow, is that a way to end it or there, what? A good, it's like you've been doing this thing for a while. <laughs> I know. and Wow. After King Kong, Chris and I cleared out of the theater. We went to go get something to eat, have a cup of coffee, and talk monster movies and other creative things. And then we went back because that evening was Vampire on the big screen. Now, I had thought that Vampire was a silent film, and we talked a little bit about that. I don't know if it actually made it into the recording, but I thought Vampire was a silent film. I was so wrong. There is some sparse dialogue in it, but it didn't need it. It's such a beautiful movie, and you're going to hear me, well, sound quite affected and affected. Is it affected or affected? doesn't matter. Vampire did a number on me. It's a 1932 vampire film, and it is 
gorgeous. Dominique joined us for that screening as well. So after the movie, we sat down outside the Northwest Film Center and pulled out the recorder. What the hell, man? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you looked at me, Chris, after this was over, and you, you just said Kong. Yeah, well, what, figured, what do you mean? I figure. remember uh, we were talking which DVD you should buy first. I'm figuring after that one, you're going with Kong. To, to be fair, <laughs> I'm not buying any movies anytime soon. Finances being what they are. Yeah. But I... No. <laughs> I I want to buy this. I want the criterion of this. It's, it's weird, man. Oh, yeah. But... I know I didn't get it all. I have a feeling this is a movie that's going to take several viewings... To get, mm-hmm. and then even then, I'm gonna have to research and learn, and then realize that what I thought I got wasn't right. Uh, I, I really liked it. I think. <laughs> um, if, if nothing else, that big metal spike. Yeah. The, that was awesome. <laughs> it was huge. That <laughs> yeah, was pretty cool. They um, were making sure they were, they were not playing around with that. So it's it's 32. It's primarily a German production. I thought it was a silent film, complete with title card, you know, the the cards and all that. That's not true. Um, but there's very little dialogue. It may as well have been a silent film. Um, first time viewing for me, and this is nothing like I thought it was going to be. Uh, very 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 different. Um, and I walk away from this, and I and I think about where genre cinema was in America in the th- early 30s. And then we have the Gollum, Nosferatu, this film. Mm-hmm. Germany was way ahead, man. How did... How, I, I know that, you know, the America film industry, America's not the end-all be-all when it comes to film. I get that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like... How? how why, why, why were we not at that point, too? Because it was, it was pretty special. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, it does. Um, I, I'm not sure. Uh, am I, I off base? I no, mean, no, 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 no. I think it's a different take on cinema. Where over... I Now, I could be totally wrong. This is just strictly my opinion. I think that cinema over there is viewed upon not as entertainment, but as art. So everything is shot almost, you know, almost like you're setting up a painting or a photograph something still that's going to look beautiful and take its time and express something each each scene you know uh where i think in america at the time cinema was just uh, entertainment it was disposable yeah it was quick it was you know throw out whatever we can and then we'll you know do something else like it again next time you know next time so I, i'm sorry go ahead to a point i think that's still true you know, I mean, you start looking at, uh, you know, foreign films. You know, I, I tend to like horror. I'm watching, you know, I've seen a couple of foreign horror films. They are totally different to American versions in almost the same way that this is. Huh. Okay. Well, All right, so let's, let's have Dominique here join. Dominique is uh, here now. She did not join us for Kong. She joined us for Vampire. Um Dominique's awesome. You guys and gals know that. She's the only one of the three of us who had seen this movie before. 
and I'm, she's sitting here, she's pacing, she's dying to say something. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, going back to why was Germany different at the time, is the war. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had such a deep, because we, bad things happened to us when it came to World War One, but bad things happened to them in their home, in their homes, in their streets. So it's just reality was not something they wanted to deal with in any way, shape, or form. Um, I also think that Europe has the better arts tradition because if you look at these films, they are very artistic, and the art direction is very, very important. I mean, Caligari, boom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually this weekend I watched some films by um, Ernst Lubitsch. Okay. And yeah, I mean, come on, art direction. And those were amazing. Which ones did you watch? Because I got a three-pack for Christmas that I haven't opened up yet of Lubitsch. So what did you see? I saw The Wildcat and The the Student of Old Heidelberg. Okay. Those are not the ones I have, but okay, cool. <laughs> I, yeah. There's there's just... And, and who's to say? I mean, there, there might have been German films that they were just cranking out as well to make a dime, and these yeah. are the ones that have survived and made their way into some sort of pop culture, our pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Chris, you said something, you know, that, you know, they create these things as if they're still images and beautiful artwork. The cameras never stop moving in this thing. I, and, and even the technology part of it, you look at Dracula and it is stagey. I love Dracula. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, it's, but it's a play on film. It's and, very static. And, and Frankenstein's a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm trying to think of a 32 horror film here in the States. Nothing's coming to mind. Um, that used cameras movement like that yes i mean you know you go back to like the early early silence and like dw griffith didn't you move the camera around a lot but you know once they introduced sound things kind of got static again and i feel like maybe part of it is because there's not as much dialogue in this one and they're able to move the camera around and not worry about where the microphone is um but it just it looks beautiful and then the technology of the special effects on top of that i mean all that stuff the practical i mean it's all practical unless well a few in-camera things but the shadows oh yeah those were beautiful the way they would be separate from the figure and then connect uh in that one sequence that's just stunning the technology involved in it and the imagery and just the creep factor. Now, Dracula's creepy. Frankenstein's got his creepy moments. But the creep factor of that, I mean, that's that's so outside the American way of thinking. I feel like you could take this movie and just put it on a projector in your windows at Halloween and not get any of those FX DVDs. Yeah. Just let that go. <laughs> yeah. Especially those early scenes where we're panning through the old house where the scientist is and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and all the shadows moving around and, you know, you, yeah. The reflections in the water. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the some of how they shot those is I'm not quite sure, but it's really impressive to look at. I just sitting here, t- so I'm still kind of blown away and flabbergasted. But oh wow, this movie's good. Mm-hmm. Why have I not seen it before? One, two. How can I learn so much more about it? And three, how can I make everybody sit down and watch it? Okay, well, I can help you a little bit with the history. Because, again, I've seen this movie a bajillion times. I love this movie. Um, So what I found out was the... Okay, so for those of you who haven't seen it, there's this weird thing with the sound that it's like Carnival of Souls where everything is slightly out of sync. Uh Um, And That's That's a really good... Not to interrupt, but good point and what a crazy double feature that would be. I know, right? I know, know, right? I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) 
but um, it actually turns out that they had to dub everything and the reason it's there's so little dialogue is because most of the people who made that film didn't actually speak the same language there was about five different languages spoken there oh, five. Um, the the lead guy was actually um, an exiled Russian noble and he's the one who put up the money for the film the guy who played Alan Gray um, he actually moved to America shortly after this and became like one of the most famous social columnists okay. <laughs> for one of the Hearst newspapers I think okay. oh, wow. um, and the the Herr Schloss, the Lord of the Castle, and his two daughters, I think they were actually German. Um, and the the Lord of the Castle actually had a small part in The Passion of Joan of Arc. He was a beautiful film. Okay, I love this movie, but Passion of Joan of Arc is way more beautiful than this movie. I, I will say that. I, yeah, I, I will agree. And um, the Joan of Arc has got, I mean, I could go off, but just the way they had to make that movie work with losing pretty much everything and using all the stuff they did. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Yeah. Um, and pretty much everybody else was like French because they spoke French and I think there were some Danish people that Dreyer brought along with him and stuff so nobody spoke the same language so everybody was just speaking and then they dubbed it all in German later I actually sat, I got curious one time because again I've seen this movie this many times I sat and counted how many lines were actually in the movie (laughs) and it was somewhere around 200 total in the entire movie Yeah, which is ridiculous for a ridiculously small amount for what a, a hour 20 minute movie yeah yeah but what's beautiful about it is they didn't need the dialogue everything is right up there on the screen for you to see it could have actually been a silent movie without subtitles and you still would have known what's going on mm-hmm. the guy who played alan gray and i don't know any of the cast and crew other than the director and that's just barely he was solid. I mean, he had a good, I mean, a European, but a good um, leading man look to me. Did he remind you in any way a little bit of H.P. Lovecraft? Yes, yes, I was yes. thinking that. <laughs> good, it wasn't yes. just me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> he did. He could have played Love. He so totally yes. could have played him. Um no, he was great. Now, the music score that we heard in this, is that pretty much what's out there now, or is that a different... Like, do you know? Uh, to my knowledge, that's the one that's out there now. Okay. Every once in a while, someone pops up and does it live, but not very often. Because okay. usually when people think Dryer live, they think Passion of Joan of Arc. Because right. that's the one that gets a live treatment all the time. Really? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Passion of Joan of Arc is really good. Really, really good. Seeing it a long, long time. Beautiful film. They showed it to crazy people. That's where they. Anyway, anyway. um, (laughs) Totally going off track. So Carl Dreyer is the director. Did I see in the opening credits Sheridan Lafanu? Is this based on a novel? Kinda. I heard because I don't know the credits say in a glass darkly. I don't know what that is. I don't think I've ever heard of that story. But most people say that this is a version of Carmela. That's what I was gonna say. Is this Carmela? The um, and all yeah. that. But uh, not really. Yeah. Um, a lot of people take anything that has female on female vampire action and say, oh, it's Carmela. But Carmela actually has like really specific. If you've seen the Vampire Lovers, that's Carmela right there. Yeah. It has the tone, the tones of abandonment and fun, trying to find love and stuff like that. This is just some weird old lady biting people. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think this one, the I mean, statute of limitations, is way I think, gone. I think we're safe on spoilers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, Kong dies at the end. Spoiler. Oh my God. You're terrible, oh my God. Chris. Terrible. 
Okay, I, I don't want people to walk away from this thinking Derek just dissed Kong. I love King Kong. No, I know. I, know. I uh, King Kong is worthy of tons of study as well, and, and I could get lost in King Kong, but it's also a popcorn movie. I don't feel this is a popcorn movie. This is a movie no. that, as Dominique has told me stories, if you're not 100% of, of your faculties at the time, um, <laughs> it's probably going to... Yeah, you're not... It's, it's going to be a different experience. Oh, um, I can only imagine. I, I told him a little bit. Yeah. Because <laughs> we didn't know what version of Dominique we were going to get tonight. So we're just... <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. version of <laughs> You know, and I think I'm just going to leave that hanging and let the listeners kind of, you know... Fill yeah. in the gaps there. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, what, what a... What a weird movie. It's, it's got a lot of weird fiction feelings to it, too, right? Am mm-hmm. I off base there? No, no absolutely. Don't, no, okay. I don't I think, think so at all. This movie takes like every gothic trope and takes it to the extreme. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is, I mean, like people wandering in into, into each other's houses without permission and reading books and yeah. <laughs> Lots of reading books. Lots of reading books. Well, yeah, but that way they didn't have to explain it in dialogue. So, you know, they yeah. just had to read it. If a dude walked into my hotel room, uh, walked yeah. over to a, <laughs> a desk, took his a letter or whatever and just wrote don't open until I die and then walked out I'm checking out I'm going up the street I'm looking for something else at the Motel 6 it's, it's not happening it's just no oh. I'm, I'm, I'm female so if a guy just wanders into my room like he's going to end up bloody on the floor and police are going to be called okay, that's so all there is to there that there was a big old candlestick <laughs> yeah exactly you know, that would have been coming out yeah. real fast <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about this one for a long time now do you have it on disc the Criterion? No, I actually have the image version because okay. when I bought it, it was before the Criterion came out. Um, I actually don't think there's a difference, so I haven't bothered to replace it okay. from what I've heard. Hmm. I, have, I have to buy it. I haven't seen this, like I said, in over a decade, and I just realized, you know, yeah, got to be on the list. I, I think it's a must-have, and I think it's at least a must-viewing for, you know, once at least. Mm-hmm. Just to get a different take. I mean, and, and horror movies at the time, you know, vampires are still kind of a new thing. I mean, we got Nosferatu, and then I got Yanked, and then Dracula, and that's, that's about it, really, for mainstream, dra- you know, Dracula, mainstream vampire stuff. And you throw this into the mix and, and see where they could have gone with the vampire storytelling tradition. Man, it's just fascinating. Those those big stakes, man. Yeah. Those big spikes. I want to see like a group of vampire hunters running into town with a whole bunch of those strapped to their horses. <laughs> <laughs> Playing the theme from uh, Twins of Evil, oh, right? There you go. Yep. <laughs> yes. 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 So this is in the public domain. Has anybody else ever, like, has there been a remake, an attempt to do something with it? Do you know? Not that I know of. I'm okay. not aware of anything either. Um, I think this is one of those movies that people just seriously watch it and go, oh, my God. I, I, <laughs> and I, just kind of back away. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think it's, you know, a very small group of people who actually seek this out. And, and it would be very hard to remake this. I mean, they're, they're, it would make no sense to remake it. Well, they remade Nosferatu in the 70s. That's why I was wondering, you know, is this something oh, yeah, they could have found? That, that is true. Speaking of Herzog earlier. Yeah. 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 I ain't gonna touch that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, but well, and they remade Caligari too, didn't they? I'm sorry, they remade Caligari as well, didn't they? Kind of, sort of. Multiple times. And one's a porn version. And it hurt my soul. Um, what? All of them. Yes. The the 80s version. Monster Kid Radio doesn't go too 
their way. So yeah, we'll just leave I'm it just, at that. I, yeah. I, I am yeah. first of all amazed, and second of all just really stunned, and third of all going, wow. Although, That's actually, weird. In their credit, there was one in I think the early two thousands, and that was the one where they just translated it. That, that one yes. was okay. That one was good. One I was remember okay. seeing that one because they took out the inner titles and had people just speak. Oh, and I think it was Doug Jones. I think what Doug Jones. I think was um, Cesare. Yeah, I think so. Caligari. I mean, this is the film we're talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I never even heard of this. Yeah, it's you can get it on Netflix. I'm pretty sure I got it on Netflix. Just I think as I a did. Disc. I think I think I did too. Yeah. And yeah, because they keep, they do, because, you know, I'm the costuming person. They do all the makeup the same. They do all the costumes the same. It's, yeah. It's just, it's just spoken. And I think they add a tiny bit of color. Yeah. Wow. That one was yeah. a good one. Yeah. That, I was yeah. surprised because I went in prepared to hate it, but they actually did. Because they were, they were trying to honor it. They weren't trying to make something else. Yeah. I think they used so. a little bit. I think they used some CGI for some of the scenes and the settings that yeah. was pretty obvious green screen. But still, it looked good. And even though you knew it was green screen, it still kept with the intention. Yeah. But we're getting off of Vampire. <laughs> and we're getting off on... Never mind. No, um, don't even. No. I, I know. You know what? This is the episode that, that may get the explicit tag. Um, <laughs> because I think in this episode, I'm also going to use Dominique's reading of her story that she said... Tell people what it is. Um, a while ago, actually, I think it was about a year ago, I wrote a story called Bad Ritual, which is basically my homage to Hammer Films. Um, it takes, in my head, it takes place after Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell. It, that's loose, obviously. Um, but yeah, there's some nasty bits towards the end and a little bit of swearing because it's the 2000s. <laughs> so. Hmm, looking forward to hearing that. Yeah. You know what? I didn't know if I was going to run this this upcoming week or not, but I'm going to. Um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll put all this in there together. Uh, and since it's going to be a relatively new recording, not one that I sat on for six months, uh, something relatively new happened with you. We've talked about on Facebook a little bit. Your Etsy store is up and running now? Yes. Yes. House of Silent Graves is up and running. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Now, when you first posted it, it was going to a British version. Has that been... Do you know anything about what happened there? Okay. I fixed it on my end. Okay, good, good, good. Um, the thing is, I found that Etsy does that to everybody. Oh. Which means you have to go into Etsy yourself and change it to US. Okay. Oh, really? Um, which you can do. It's like down at the very bottom. It, there's a little button that says Sterling Pounds UK, and you can hit that and it'll change it. Okay, you hear that? So listeners, don't be put off. You don't have to have pounds to buy Dominique's awesome <laughs> stuff. Do you still have tinglers for sale over there? Yep, still got a couple. Any other awesome items people should be looking for? I'm working on a couple right now, but nothing up yet. Okay. Okay. We'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, of yes, course. And if you like the movie, you need one of her tinglers. Trust me. <laughs> Every, they are awesome. Everybody that's bought one, uh, either from before, or I think people, some people have ordered one from the Etsy store, haven't they? Yeah. Uh, every, everybody posts on Facebook how much they love it. So uh, check that out and support Dominique. She's one of the good ones. Um, anything else about Vampire before we wrap up? Um, you have to see it. Okay. And, you know, it's even better if you can do what we did and actually see it on a big screen because, I mean, the it looks beautiful. It is so beautifully shot. Um, the effects just will make you just sit there and go, now, how did they do that? I got an idea, but that's really good, you know. Um, <laughs> it's a wonderful movie. Check it out. Um, oh my god, I don't even know what to say. I love this movie beyond words. Um, 
if you consider yourself a goth and you haven't seen this movie, I will find you and I will beat you and I will take your goth club card away because it's not allowed. <laughs> um, <laughs> not allowed. <laughs> see, All right. See, see, over the radio, nobody can see that I'm dressed head to toe in black and I actually have candlestick curls. So this is a goth movie. Go see it. <laughs> and yeah, I just, I don't know. I have no words. I love this movie so much. Are, are you wearing vampire socks? Yes, I am. Lime that, green. Yes. That's amazing. I saw those. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, Perfect for the movie. And if you are so inclined, because he's putting the explicit tag on this, watch this movie doped up. It is totally worth it. <laughs> so I, I don't partake, but I walked out of this movie still feeling like maybe I got a contact high off something. We are in Portland after all, so this is very that's possible. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, man, it's just... It's a fascinating film that I need to watch more than once. I'm so glad that I never bothered to watch or, or tried watching the transfers in the Mill Creek sets or the 50 pet movie packs or various yeah. YouTubes or Roku channels uh, will have it as well. And I just think, you know, the, the transfer just didn't hold up. And there are a couple shots on this that were murky, but this has to have been at least the image release because um, it, it looks pretty good. I mean, I, I've seen... Universal films from the same era that look worse that haven't mm -hmm. been treated as well And I think that's important because there's so much really cool stuff with the reflections the shadows um, uh, Okay, maybe his face showing up in the window at the end was a little hmm. but yeah. still it, it It's so cool, man mm -hmm. um, and, and the intensity of a lot of the things that are happening here uh, The guy getting smothered in the ground in the mill i mean that was that was pretty pretty well done i mean we, we've goodness. seen something similar in like we've seen zombies fall into one like in a white zombie kind of right. thing but this was a slow long drawn out and in the editing and the pacing and that's another thing about the filmmaking technology that mm -hmm. i feel like they were ahead of us on is that the cross cutting and the the inner cutting between different scenes and different parts of the story it's never jarring it always works it helps to build the suspense whereas you know, in America, we weren't doing it as much, if at all. Um, and, and in fact, some filmmakers fought against it, thinking it, audiences wouldn't be able to keep up. Boy, they're wrong. <laughs> this this film, oh, it's good. It's really good. I have to admit, I was a little worried because you were singer going, hmm, <laughs> yeah. hmm, yeah. and I'm like, uh oh. He, he didn't say anything for a couple no. minutes, like right no. after the movie ended. Nothing, and I'm just like. <laughs> Whoa, yeah, we may I, have broken Derek. I thought that was a bad sign. <laughs> I wanted to save it all for this. I was, I was letting it digest, and I'm going to be thinking about this movie and going, hmm, for quite a while, I think. Yeah. I want to know if you guys have any weird dreams, because this movie still gives me weird dreams after I watch it. Okay, okay I'll keep you posted. Well, thanks for uh, being our vampire guide, Dominique, <laughs> uh, and really hyping up this movie, because when the two movies came up, I was really excited about Kong and Vampire. I was thinking, oh, it's at night, it's Sunday night, and it's probably the most well-attended movie we've seen here at the Northwest Film Center. I think at least, so. Yeah, and I, mean, I think it was even better than Psycho's Crowd. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. a lot more people. And oh, wow, <laughs> so good. <laughs> so thank you, Dominique. Thank you, Chris from the Shadow Over Portland. And uh, yeah, go see Vampire, or Dominique will come after you with one of those big spikes and you won't want <laughs> although I have noticed she's having trouble going up and downstairs so you might be okay if you can find like a porch 
you know, just to... <laughs> I have been a goth for almost 20 years. If you think that's going to stop me. <laughs> no porch shall stop her. <laughs> I know it was kind of short notice to put together this kind of sort of monster kid radio crash. Didn't really know it was happening. I mean, I knew it was happening, but I didn't know how close it was getting to happening. So I didn't really promote it very well. I am so thrilled to watch movies like this with like-minded monster kids. So Chris, Dominique, thanks for joining me at the Northwest Film Center and spending some time with the recorder and the rest of the monster kid radio audience to talk about these two films. And wow, if you can't tell, Vampire blew my mind. I love that movie. I really want to know more about it. Now, like Dominique said, and like I said at the beginning of this episode, she has a story called Bad Ritual that she is reading for us. So settle down. Imagine that you're sitting in like a crypt or a deep cave somewhere while Dominique is up on her throne, maybe like in Tales from the Crypt, the Amicus film, where they're all sitting around in that chamber and the Crypt Keeper gets up and starts telling tales. Well, Dominique's not the Crypt Keeper. She's, you know what I mean. Enjoy the story. Gilmar Lawrence couldn't keep his horse still as he stared into the forest before him. The animal was nervous, and Guillemar could understand why. It was only a short trip from the village of Vandorf to Castlehorst, but the forest between them felt like a monster that was waiting to consume its next victim. Guillemar had no desire to be a victim, but he should have been at the castle this afternoon. Knowing what he did of Fräulein Merton's temperament made him nudge the horse on. He doubted what was in the forest would frighten him as much as the icy brown eyes and annoyed purse of the lips that awaited him. He held up the lantern the innkeeper and Vandorf had given him and pushed the horse no further than a slow walk. The innkeeper had refused to serve Gilmar. He gave the traveler a lantern and a shove out the door. But the old man hadn't been fast enough. His poor wife, face so red it looked like she'd been crying for years, had rushed at Gilmar and begged him to help find her daughter. Poor Claramunda had been missing for weeks, and had probably gotten lost in the forest. The innkeeper had struck his wife across the face and slammed the door. Guillemar could understand the fear of being lost in the forest at that moment, but he also noticed that the path he was on was well trodden. It seemed people often went to the castle. A girl giggled somewhere. The horse whinnied and began to fuss. With one hand, he stroked the horse's neck to calm it. His other arm raised the lantern for all the good it would do. Fräulein Claramunda, he called. Is that why you're in the forest? A female voice asked. The horse started to rear, making Guillemar drop the lantern to get the animal under control. As soon as the horse settled, he saw a dark-haired woman clad in a gauzy white dress that was entirely inappropriate for the woods. Her red lips smiled at him luridly as she leaned down to pick up the fallen lantern. Guillemar's eyes momentarily widened at how much of her bosom he saw. He managed to force his expression into a polite smile as she handed him the lantern. "'You're looking for a girl. Is that why you've come?' she asked again, her voice sweet as honey. "'No. I was hired as an assistant at the castle. I mistook you for someone that's missing from the village.' She smiled, and the amount of very white teeth she was showing made her look hungry. "'The castle?' I didn't think we'd hired anyone at the castle, but he often doesn't tell me things, and we always welcome guests. She stepped forward, and the skittish horse backed away. Guillemar had to force himself to look away from her eyes as he dug into his jacket. But I have a letter here from Fräulein Merton asking me to come to Castlehurst. Castlehurst! The woman in white spat. 
He thought he heard her hiss as she turned and swept away into the forest. Guillemar watched her disappear into the darkness. He wondered if there was more than one castle nearby. He urged the horse on, but traveled only a few moments before he saw a man striding towards the village. His hair and mustache were gray. His light-colored traveling coat was well-kept but worn. The man's expression was grim, and in the hand that hung at his side was the head of a beautiful woman. Even in the darkness, Guillemar could see how white the man's knuckles were as he gripped the hair. "'What have you done to that woman?' Guillemar asked in horror. "'Go back to the village!' the man snapped without breaking stride or looking at Guillemar. "'Perhaps I should. I'll bring the police here to see this,' he countered. Now the man stopped and rounded on Guillemar. "'The police won't follow you into the forest,' he declared. "'The police cower at this place. The police let people disappear and children be taken to cover their own ineptitude.' Go back to the village. This forest is no place for fools, he commanded. Guillemar gathered his courage and straightened a little. I'll have you know that I have a position at the castle. The older man looked him over. Which castle? There's more than one? The older man barked a laugh. If you don't know that, then you should never have left Vandorf. Go back now while you still can. The older man was finished. He turned and stalked away. Guillemar frowned and watched him for a moment. Mad old fool, he sniffed, and spurred his horse forward. Another few moments brought him to a fork in the road. Between the two paths was a pond. There was an older woman in a black dress with her gray hair tightly bound at the back of her head. She had both hands in the pond until she turned to look at him. Which castle are you going to? she asked, her voice stiff with a practiced formality. Castle Hurst. She pointed to the left-hand path. That way. It's a good thing you found me here. The Baron would have been most upset if you'd taken the other road. The woman gave him a smile that was barely concealing something and turned back to the pond. Follow the violin. It will lead you. You're almost there. I thank you, Guillemar said and rode forward. He glanced back as he passed and chose to ignore the fact that what the woman drew out of the pond looked like a little girl's body. He heard the violin almost immediately and halted his horse. There it was, the reason he'd come. He urged his horse to a trot and soon saw specks of light ahead. As he neared, he saw Greta Merton. She stood in the middle of a gaping hole in the wall. She wore a dark dress. Her blonde hair was bound up in a way that was almost fashionable but mostly utilitarian. Her arms were folded over her ample bosom, her full lips pursed in annoyance, icy brown eyes disapproved. Guillemar didn't notice that the violin had stopped. He dismounted quickly. Fräulein Merton, he said with a bow. She raised an eyebrow. Lateless does not make a good impression. I'm very sorry, he said. I stopped to help a carriage with a broken wheel. It took longer than I expected. She smiled, clearly humoring him. At least you're here. Tether your horse, she said, giving a dismissive flick at the other horses gathered around a water trough. They were in what had once been the Great Hall. The wall that had been the entrance had collapsed. There was no furniture or decoration. There were torches set in sconces, allowing for plenty of light, but making the narrow doorways in the wall seem that much darker. I suspect your trip through the forest was eventful, Greta said, watching him as he unsaddled his horse. Here you'll find a few of the old stories you were so fond of telling me about when we met in Munich. The violinist is only one of many. Guillemar's heart leapt into his throat. Fräulein Merton, he said, his hands nearly shaking in his excitement. 
Call me Greta, she said, glancing about the room as if she were looking for someone. Greta, he said without missing a beat. Just after the fork in the road, I heard it. Heard what? Guillemar was, so was too wound up to notice that she wasn't listening to him. The violinist, I heard it. She looked at him. Congratulations. I suspect this is the first time you've experienced what you've been writing about. The villagers of Vandorf believe the violinist is a devil that roams the halls of Castlehurst, and that we snatch children to sacrifice at our black masses to appease it. The corner of her mouth turned up in amusement. The smile fell from his face. Greta shook her hand at him and looked off. No children have been taken for three months. In whatever free time we give you, you can go to the village and ask around. But first and foremost, you are the laboratory assistant. What will my duties be? You'll be keeping records for us, cleaning the laboratory. You will cook dinner from time to time. We have no servants here. We take turns. Will I meet the Baron tonight? No, in the morning. He has already retired. He heard a gasp and turned to the doorways behind him. There was someone standing inside one of them. So far back, the only detail he saw was that she wore a dress. He took a step towards the woman, but she disappeared. Something small flopped out into the light. He approached it and saw a rag doll, brown woolen hair surrounding a face of smiling buttons. He bent down to pick it up. Please! Someone nearly shouted. Guillemar was shoved aside as a man darted forward and scooped the toy up. Please don't touch that! Greta moved forward and put a hand on the man's arm. I forgot to tell him, Albrecht, she said. She looked at the younger man. Any toys you find are not to be touched, she said simply. She shook a hand at the older man. Guillemar Loritz, this is Dr. Albrecht Rossiter, my research partner. The other man gave a jittery smile. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to shout, but she gets upset if she can't find her toys. We'll introduce him to Adelina later, Greta interrupted. Why don't you take our guest upstairs so he can freshen up while I finish dinner, she suggested. Certainly, the man said, clutching the doll to his chest. Come, come. He took a torch and started towards one of the doorways. The stone stairway looked as old as the rest of the castle, and was so narrow two people couldn't walk abreast. How wonderful it is to have a new assistant, Albrecht rambled as they went up the stairs. Wonderful. Greta says you're from Dusseldorf. You must tell me about it over dinner. It's been so long since I've been there. I've been very busy, very busy here. And she says you're interested in the old fairy stories that villagers tell. Is that why you came here? Guillemar couldn't keep himself from smiling and nodding. Yes, Greta told me about the violinist who steals children in Bandorf. I've never heard a story like it, so I've decided to come here and record it. I hope to collect stories like it from all over Germany. Rossiter's foot missed the next step, and his smile flattened. The violinist, yes, children, he said absently. Then his mouth jerked into a smile that didn't stretch to his eyes. Like those grim fellows. He started up the stairs again as he changed the subject. I hope Greta wasn't giving you any trouble. Most people don't care for her. She can be quite terse when she loses patience. He laughed a little and looked back, a smile on his face. Unfortunately, she has no patience with anyone who isn't a scientist. She's quite brilliant, though. Quite brilliant. What are you researching? Guillemar ventured, trying to hide his discomfort. Merton had mentioned neither a man of delicate nerves nor a child. Albrecht looked back at Guillemar with a childlike glint in his eye and an excited smile. Life! We are trying to find the core of what keeps the human body alive and functioning. When we know the root of it, the spark, all disease and injury can be cured. They passed into a hallway, and Albrecht turned. 
Is Adelina your daughter? Guillemar asked. Fräulein Merton doesn't seem like the type to have children. Rossiter gave him a knowing smile. Indeed not. Adelina is mine. She was taken from me for a time, but she's returned home now, thankfully. He paused and opened a door. Greta will collect you for dinner. I must see to my daughter now. Guillemar watched him go, and then turned into the room. He found matches and lit some candles. The bed looked comfortable. There was a selection of books, though on closer inspection he saw they were all medical texts. There was a washing stand with water, soap, towel, even a razor. He set his bag on the floor, not wanting to get the dust of the road on the coverlet. He took off his jacket and rolled up his sleeves, filled the wash basin with water. He found himself annoyed with Greta. She hadn't been completely honest with him about the position he was taking. He knew nothing about children, and Rossiter hardly seemed mentally sound enough to be doing legitimate research. Guillemar paused as he rubbed the bar of soap between his hands. Greta had mentioned that children had stopped vanishing three months ago, before they met in Munich. And how did she know it was three months ago when she seemed to care so little about the story of the violinist? He rinsed off his hands and splashed water on his face. He dried himself off and looked at his reflection in the mirror over the basin. A flicker of light caught his eye. He turned and saw that his door was open. In the sliver of darkness, he saw a white face hovering over a candle. A woman was watching him. He wondered for a moment if it was Adelina, but this was no child. The door slammed shut. He rushed forward and reached it just as a key turned in the lock. He pulled at the handle and banged on the door with the fist. Who's there? He called. Hello? He stopped and put his ear to the wood. There was a violin playing. It sounded like the one he'd heard in the forest. He tried the door handle again, even though he knew the result. He would have to wait until someone found him. Gilmore realized how badly he was shaking. He tried to gather his thoughts by deciding his traveling suit was inappropriate for dinner. He should change. The violinist, the boogeyman who stole children from the village of Vandorf, was in this castle. Guillemar had to admit now that he hadn't heard the story before he'd met Merton in Munich, so there were no clues if the child thief was supposed to be a devil, a ghost, a monster, perhaps even some deranged person. As for the violinist's connection to the castle, the door handle rattled, and Guillemar jumped. Herr Lawrence? Greta called as she knocked. Are you in there? Yes, he called back, coming to the door. Someone has locked me in. Oh, for God's sake, Greta huffed. He heard the keys jangling, and the lock turned. Guillemar pulled the door open. Greta looked him up and down with a disapproving eye. How did you manage to lock yourself in? Guillemar was too anxious to be intimidated. I did no such thing. I was locked in by some woman. Merton's eyes narrowed, and her mouth set into a line. That was Edelina spying on you. Come. Her voice was hard, as if she was trying to force him to believe it. I see he said, his own suspicion matching hers. He straightened and followed her into the dining room. Dinner was a quiet affair for Guillemar, who could only watch as Greta and Albrecht argued scientific theory that the young man had no understanding of. Neither scientist seemed inclined to explain things to him. He could barely hide how glad he was when Greta rose from the table. Guillemar, tomorrow you will meet Herr Baron and will take you to the laboratory to begin your duties. Albrecht will take you to, to your room. I'll clean up here and meet him in the laboratory later. Albrecht nodded and led Guillemar back to the narrow stairway. At the top of the stairs, Albrecht stopped and faced the other man. Both Greta and I are glad you're here. She's terrible with bookkeeping, brilliant with research, terrible with records. You remember which room is yours? The scientist asked. 
Guillemar nodded. Then I will let you find it. I have a few things to do before I go down to the laboratory. Guillemar smiled at the other man. Albrecht opened the door and shut it quietly behind him, but not before Guillemar heard him say, Have you eaten your dinner, my dear? Guillemar sighed as he entered his room. He thought of changing and going to bed, but he knew he was too excited for that. He went to the bookshop to find something to read. Hopefully a medical book would put him to sleep. But just then, the violin started again. Guillemar rounded on the door and rushed back to it. He didn't have to strain that hard to hear it, so it was close by. He quickly blew out the candles he lit and opened the door as quietly as he could. He looked out and watched for a moment. Someone opened a door near the stairway. Guillemar guessed it was the one Albrecht had gone into. He heard a girl's laughter, then the woman who'd locked him in twirled out of the room. Albrecht followed, playing a violin. Guillemar could see his wide smile in the torchlight. The woman neared the stairs, and he stopped playing. Papa, the woman whined. Albrecht was stern. Be careful going near the stairs. Go down slowly, and I'll play for you when we get to the laboratory. Do I have to go to the laboratory? She asked, her bottom lip jutting out. Yes, my sweet, Albrecht said. We need to make sure you're well after your operation. It'll only take a few moments. She nodded once and disappeared down the stairway. Albrecht followed. As soon as their steps sounded distant, Guillemar slipped out of his room and crept after them. As he passed the door they'd come out of, he saw that they left it ajar. He pushed it open just enough to enter. The large canopy bed done up in pink revealed this to be a little girl's bedroom. There was a half-eaten plate of food under the candelabra on the side table. He looked around the room and saw a dollhouse, children's books, all manner of toys scattered around. Guillemar backed out of the bedroom as he turned the situation over in his head. Edelina was grown, but she was acting like a child. And what operation had she undergone? A door opened somewhere. Guillemar turned and saw the light of a candle at the far end of the hall. Rossiter! A male voice croaked out of the darkness, making the candle flicker. The voice was old and gravelly. It sounded annoyed as well. Guillemar faced the hallway. Herr Baron? He asked back. Not Rossiter. The voice came again. Guillemar shuffled and stepped forward as the old man muttered. Shouldn't be out of his room. I told her. Feet shuffled and the candle disappeared. The door closed. Herr Baron, Guillemar called again, starting to walk into the darkness. He heard footsteps coming up the stairs. He ducked into the first door he found. He closed it gently and waited for the steps to pass. Once they did, he opened it enough to peek out. Light spilled into the hall as Greta opened the door the old man had gone into. He slipped out and hugged the wall as he went after her. She entered and closed the door, but not all the way. He crept out and peered through the sliver between the door and the door frame. Greta stood at the foot of a bed, her arms crossed, her face thoughtful. This body is always cold, the gravelly voice said. And Greta looked off. That won't be an issue much longer. You're certain about this? It worked on the girl. I see no reason why it won't work on you as long as the specimen is fit. A dismissive grunt was the response she got. Guillemar searched for the source of the voice, but the bed it was on was back too far. Greta sighed and ran a hand over her face. Thank God we finally did it. I don't think Rossiter would have lasted much longer, and he was starting to get suspicious about the children I was bringing in. I heard him at that infernal violin again, the old man spat. Tell him to stop playing it in the castle. 
Greta looked annoyed and shook a hand at him. The girl likes the playing. That's why he does it. After everything he's done for you, you can indulge him. We are scientists. We cannot afford to be sentimental. He can be replaced if need be, he said imperiously. Greta looked at the old man with an evil smile. The same could be said for you, Herr Baron, she purred. No one has seen you for decades. There was a pause. Then the old man laughed, the sound like metal grating on metal. Well played, Merton. See to the girl. I'll be down to monitor your progress shortly. Guillaumar sidled into an empty room as Greta passed. His eyes moved over the darkness around him. He was more confused than ever after what he just heard. The Baron was old and sick and needed some kind of procedure, which they had done on Edelina, who looked like a woman and acted like a child. The darkness bothered Guillaumar now. He already felt like he was stumbling blind. He found matches and lit some candles. He sat on the edge of the bed nearest him and jumped up when something touched his leg. It was an emaciated hand. Looking back, he saw a twisted and desiccated body. Its jaw hung loose. He couldn't tell if there were eyes. He only saw two dark holes. The scalp had no hair, and there was a bloodless gash that had been sunk shut across the forehead. It was small and had no clothes. It looked like a very young girl who'd been dead for a long time. He screamed as he fell off the bed, the hand sliding after him. He panted as he stared in horror at the skeletal fingers dangling over the edge. He screamed again when the door opened. Merton stared at him, a candle in one hand, an annoyed frown on her face. Herr Baron was right. I should have drugged your food. Now I'll never hear the end of it. That, he stammered, pointing a shaking finger at the bed. Rossiter is brilliant, a medical genius. When his wife died in childbirth, he threw himself into discovering why, so that no one would have to go through what he did. Then cholera took Adelina, and he had nothing left to live for until the Baron convinced him that the work we're doing will stop other children from dying. That! Guillemar insisted again, thrusting an accusing finger at the corpse. Merton was not giving him an answer. That is Adelina. We couldn't convince Rossiter to let us get rid of the body. This is why we should have done it anyway. Claramunda, from the village. That woman downstairs is Claramunda, he said. And you've done something to her to make her think she's Adelina. We are taking good care of her, Greta said evenly. Justice will take good care of you. Guillemar's instincts took over. He scrambled to his feet and ran for the door. Merton tried to shut it on him, but he got there first. He shoved the scientist back into the hallway. He put a hand to her chin and cracked her head against the wall and ran, not stopping to see if the blow had knocked her out. He rushed down the stairs. He had to get Claramonda and leave. He was taking her back to her parents, whatever state she was in. He had to try several doorways, but he eventually found the laboratory. Tables and bottles and flasks sat in big and winding arrangements over cold flame valves. In the middle of the room was a raised wooden pallet. The woman laying on it was watching him like a startled deer. Who are you? she asked, hugging a doll. My name is Guillemar. Fraulein Merton brought me here to help in the laboratory, he explained, trying to sound friendly. What's your name? Edelina, she said. As Guillemar got closer, he could see a line across the girl's forehead that looked like a scar. Her hair seemed very short as well, as, as if it had all been cut off recently. Not Claramunda, he asked. The girl shook her head. You don't know who Claramunda is? She shook her head stubbornly and looked upset. 
This is Papa's laboratory, she says, as if, as if he'd done something very wrong by coming in. She sat up. Where is my Papa? Your father went to the village, he lied. She shook her head. Papa didn't tell me he was leaving. Dear Marshester, he's in the village and he wants me to take you to him. He had to get her back to the village and appeasing her now was the only way to make it go smoothly. No, the girl cried. I want my Papa. Stop, Albert's voice echoed through the chamber. Guillemar rounded. Rossiter looked confused and worried. Stay back, Guillemar demanded, putting an arm out to keep the girl back. Papa, the woman child begged behind him. That's my daughter, Albrecht tried to explain. No, she's Claramonda, the innkeeper's daughter. Not anymore. We put Edelina's brain in Claramonda's body. Guillemar froze. Edelina took the opportunity to run past him into Rossiter's arms. The scientist looked at Guillemar. Don't you see what we've done here? We found a way to save lives. Now no one will have to lose their child like I did. He looked back at Edelina. Get your doll, sweet. Go to your room and wait for me, all right? He cooed. She nodded, trying hard not to cry. She shuffled back to the table. That was when Albrecht noticed that Guillemar had disappeared. A chair hit Rossiter from behind, smashing him to the floor. He groaned, momentarily stunned. Guillemar used the distraction. He grabbed Adelina by the arm and started to pull her away. No! She shrieked, fighting to get away from him. Papa! I will not let you take her from me, Albrecht roared. He grabbed Guillemar's ankle. Adelina wrenched herself free as the young man tumbled, his back hitting the stone floor with a stab of pain. Albrecht lunged for something on a nearby table and swung down, barely missing Guillemar's face with a scalpel. He tried to grab the scientist's wrist, but Albrecht twisted away and punched Guillemar with his free fist. Guillemar returned the favor, striking Albrecht's sternum, leaving the man winded. Guillemar pushed him off. Edelina sobbed loudly. Please stop! Please don't hurt each other! Guillemar got to his feet and reached for the girl again, but Albrecht plowed into his torso, sending both men into a table full of glass. Guillemar swung as Albrecht's face and connected. The scientist hit the floor, but struggled back to his feet. Guillemar found another scalpel on the floor and took hold of it as Albrecht rushed at him. He buried the instrument in Rossiter's neck. The sudden stillness that gripped the room alarmed Edelina, who shrieked and fell into hysterical sobs. Guillemar jerked his arm, ripping out the scalpel and leaving a bloody gash. Albrecht stumbled back, his hand pressed to his wound. He fell, and Edelina rushed to his side. Papa! Papa, no! She begged as she clutched at him. His mouth opened, and he gurgled as he tried to speak, grasping at her arm. Nothing came out but blood. Edelina shook her father. Say something! Papa, don't die! Guillemar just watched the scene, catching his breath and deciding whether or not he would have to knock the girl unconscious to get her out. Devil's in hell! came a gravelly voice behind him. Can't a man get any peace in his own home? Guillemar twisted to look at the doorway. There stood a bent old man, leaning on a walking stick. He was impossibly thin. His face was hard and narrow and came to a point. His mouth was set in an annoyed line, and his beady blue eyes looked over the scene. Herr Baron, Edelina pleaded frantically. Papa's bleeding. Please help him. You're a doctor. The Baron struggled to take a step in, and his eyes swept over a pool of blood on the floor. Your father is dead, he said gruffly. He pointed his stick at Guillemar. I wish Merton had drugged you like I wanted. You are far too nosy. And look at what you almost did. 
If Albrecht had done any permanent damage to you, I would have killed him myself. I need your body perfectly intact. Guillemar was rigid with shock. That was the job Greta had for him. The Baron's new body, now that the tra brain transplants had been successful. Guillemar made up his mind. The Baron had to be stopped. But the old man would be easy to deal with. There was something else he that needed to be handled first. Edelina couldn't be allowed to interfere. Guillemar turned to the child. Edelina, he said softly. I'm sorry I hurt your father. I... I panicked. Can you forgive me? Her eyes were unsure. You killed my papa. I thought he was trying to hurt you. The Baron watched, clearly amused. He's right, girl. He didn't understand. Now he does. Edelina looked at the Baron, then at Gilmar. Right. She stood, still suspicious. Shall we take care of your papa now? Gilmar asked. Edelina's eyes filled with tears again as she looked at the dead man. We have to take him to church. Gilmar crept forward. Yes, we'll take him to church. But as soon as he got within reach, he jabbed her in the eye with the scalpel he still held. She howled in pain, but Guillemar wasn't finished. He lunged over the dead scientist, took the girl's head in both hands, and shoved it to the floor. Her screaming stopped, but he heard the Baron. What are you doing? The old man snapped. Guillemar beat Edelina's head against the stones until the seam of her forehead split and her brain spilled out. He wrenched the scalpel out of her eye socket and began stabbing at the organ. Stop! The Baron cried. He swung his walking stick down on Guillemar, but he had the strength for no more than a feeble pat. He tried again, but Guillemar rounded and belted the old man across the face. The Baron's frail form fell to the floor, out cold. Guillemar wasted no time getting to his feet and hoisting the small man over his shoulder. He carried the Baron to a coach waiting in the great hall and threw him in. He drove the coach toward Vandorf. He would get the Baron to the village and explain everything. Then the people could do what they wanted with the madman. But when he reached the fork in the road, the path to Vandorf was blocked. The horses skidded to a stop, and Guillemar saw a pack of dogs pacing across the road. They were glowing with a sickly light, and Guillemar's heart leapt into his throat. Hellhounds. The beasts all stopped and growled, focused on the horses. Guillemar whipped the horses and pulled them towards the other fork. The horses obeyed and took off faster than he'd intended. The hounds followed, keeping pace with the carriage as they snarled and snapped. Then he heard horses that weren't his. He glanced back and saw behind the hounds monsters on mounts. Bones in the shape of men riding, bones in the shape of horses. While the hounds were focused on the horses, the riders were focused on him. The trees cleared, and he saw a castle, darker than the night sky beyond it. It wasn't too far ahead. He hoped there would be a place to hide from the creatures on castle grounds. The inhabitants might not make it to the door in time to help him. His carriage crossed a bridge over a small river, and the trembling horses came to a stop. Guillemar twisted in his seat and saw that his pursuers had not crossed the river. The riders were still a stone, but the hounds paced, snarling in frustration. He disembarked and backed away towards the doors into the castle, his eyes still watching the creatures beyond the ridge. He stopped when he heard hooves in the distance. A horse was coming towards the castle as fast as it could. Riders and hounds parted, and he saw Merton bearing down on him, her face crimson with fury. Guillemar straightened and set his jaw. She was only human. He could kill her if he had to, and he knew he would have to. She rode straight at him. 
He didn't see the riding crop until it connected with his face, splitting his cheek and sending him reeling. As soon as she connected, Greta slowed the horse just enough to dismount. She charged at him, riding crop held high again. He grabbed her wrist and was so focused on getting it away from her that he didn't notice her gun until it was pressed to his thigh. She pulled the trigger, and the blast filled the empty courtyard, drowning out Gilmar's scream. He fell back, and Greta hit him across the face, this time with the butt of the gun. She spat on him and strode towards the coach. Gilmar couldn't make himself move for a moment. The pain was so great. But he had to get help. There had to be someone inside the castle. He fought the pain and dragged himself up the steps to the castle doors. Help! Someone help! Please! He begged. With a groan, the doors of the castle opened. A man moved into the doorway, tall and dark, straight as the blade of a sword. Please, Gilmar begged before the man had any time to speak. Please, she's going to kill me. I'd be glad to help you, the man said, his voice a rich baritone that managed to sound both warm and intimidating at the same time. Count, Merton interrupted. The man's dark eyes moved from the bleeding man to the arrogant woman, and annoyance flickered into them. Greta had helped the Baron out of the coach. You will not give this man hospitality, the Baron announced. I brought him here. He's mine. You stick to your wenching. The woman in white Guillemar had seen in the forest glided up next to the Count and glared at the Baron. You're the one who drove him here, the Count reasoned. I did not, the Baron asserted. The Count was accustomed to being obeyed, but the Baron was most certainly not accustomed to obeying. This one didn't do her job, he waved his stick at Greta, who scoffed. She marched toward Guillemar and tore a strip of linen from her skirt. She gave the Count a disgusted glance as she bandaged Guillemar's leg. The Baron swung his walking stick in the Count's direction. Regardless of his pleas, I brought him here, and we have an agreement. Guillemar tried one more time. He dragged himself away from Merton and up the steps as he pleaded, Count, you must help me. He's going to kill me and put his brain in my body. Disinterested eyes moved to the bleeding man. I am well aware of what he will do to you, he said, dismissing the human. The Count looked back at the Baron. The agreement is becoming a nuisance, he declared. Do we not find enough large-breasted women for you? Greta asked with too much mock sympathy. Red eyes flashed as the Count lowered his voice. Muzzle your bitch, Frankenstein. Mind your fangs, Dracula, the Baron countered. Our agreement is as much a nuisance to me as it is to you. How many of my specimens have you stolen before they even reached my castle? He struck the stones underfoot with his stick. I'll make us both happy. When surgery on this one is done, we'll leave you to your pets. A fine idea, the Count turned into his keep. The woman in white bore her fangs at them with a hiss before she followed. The doors of Castle Dracula closed. Guillemar gave a helpless whimper. He tried one last time to crawl away. Merton swung at him with a riding crop. He had the presence of mind to catch it, but that earned him a kick in the face. He tried to shield himself from the blows that came next, but only had minor success. Every time he fought too hard, Greta hit the bullet wound. Merton, stop! Don't ruin my body! The Baron commanded. Greta obeyed, her chest heaving as she stared down at the young man. I haven't done anything that won't heal completely. I was careful. The Baron threw a rope at her. Tie him up. As soon as he's fully healed, we transplant. Greta took the rope and gathered Guillemar's feet together. 
I don't think we need to wait that long. The body will heal just as well with your brain in it. The old man swung his walking stick over his head dismissively. No chances, in case your temper damaged an otherwise perfect specimen beyond repair. He looked at the riders and hounds still watching and waved his stick at them. Off with you! Obediently, the monster skulked back into the forest. What do you think of Russia, Merton? The Baron called as he struggled into the carriage. I think Russia is cold, she called back. She flipped Gilmar onto his back. I hope you can live with yourself for the short time you have left, she said as she tied off his hands. You murdered a child and a great scientist. He did more with his life than you would have with your fairy stories. He stole children, Gilmar fought back with the last of his energy. Don't be a fool. I took those children. Rossiter never could have done it. She jabbed at his leg wound again, which made him cry out. I lied to him and told him the children had died in the village. He never would have cooperated with us if he'd known the truth. She slung his arm over her shoulders and hoisted him to his feet. His head lolled forward and he saw that she'd given him enough slack at the ankles to shuffle. You're to be congratulated. You came to Vandorf to discover the mystery of the violinist. Not only did you succeed, but you'll have made the villagers and the Count very happy shortly. She shoved him onto the floor of the coach and slammed the door. As soon as the Baron's brain is in your body, we're off to Russia, and they'll never have to deal with us again. Greta slapped the side of the coach as she climbed into the driver's seat. And that will be a glorious game for all of us. I won't have to look at ignorant yokels or fanged trollops ever again. Perhaps you really are a bitch, Merton, the Baron said with a wicked little chuckle. As the carriage turned back to Castlehurst, he eyed Gilmar closely to make sure none of the wounds would be permanent. Dr. Frankenstein found the secret of life, but he lost control. Now, in a screen thriller, Frankenstein's castle of freaks, his monstrous creations, fantastic creatures break free. See Rosanna Brazzi, Michael Dunn, Edmund Purdom, and international beauty Christiane Royce in Frankenstein's castle of freaks. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Double Evil Shock Hits with the most fearsome females in horror history. Twice the spine-chilling, heart-stopping terror. Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Rated R under 17, not admitted without peril. We interrupt this program to bring you the following special announcement. The world's first horror head transplant has failed, and five brain donors have died in the experiment. Now you can see it all at your local theater in Beast of Blood. And on the same show, Curse of the Vampires, both brand new in gory color. You'll see a mad fiend transplant human heads in the Cave of Horrors and encounter stunning, screaming, shocking terror as it lives. A monster's head detached from its body, causing savage and inhuman destruction. More fantastic than science, more shocking than fantasy, the creature without a head, controlled by an insane artificial brain, Beast of Blood. Don't miss Beast of Blood and Curse of the Vampires, both rated GP. 
That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thank you to Chris McMillan, who you can find at the Shadow Over Portland, which is at shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. And thanks to Dominique Lamses, who is the proprietor of the House of Silent Graves, the Etsy shop that you can find at etsy.com slash shop slash House of Silent Graves. I'll make sure there's links to these in the show notes. Well, Shadow Over Portland's already there, but I'll make sure there's a link to get to these websites. Again, big thanks to those two. And thank you for listening to the show. Really appreciate you being along for the ride and kind of rolling with us as we did things slightly differently uh, this week on the show. Very little editing on the conversations that we had outside the Northwest Film Center. I wanted to keep it kind of raw and loose, especially after Vampire, because it was just so good, mind-blowing, and mind-expanding. If you have any thoughts or comments on this episode of Monster Kid Radio, again, you can call us at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can send us an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, this is over on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we talk about here on the show. There's also a link to our Facebook page and our Facebook group. And of course, the YouTube video, which I'm very proud of, you can get to the YouTube channel from here as well. Or again, just look up Monster Kid Radio on YouTube. What is coming up next week on the show? Well, I know. Scott Morris knows because he was part of the recording. And that's pretty much the only two people who know. And I'm going to keep it a surprise. But it's going to be a fun time. I promise you. It's, it's, a, it's a blast going to have a lot of fun with it. So come back for that. We are talking about a public domain monster movie from, I believe, the 50s, 1959 specifically. That's all you're going to get out of me, though. You have to come back next week to find out what it is. We have an active Facebook page. We have an active Facebook group. And I'm getting back into the Twitter swing of things. You can find Monster Kid Radio on Twitter as well. Please follow along, join the group, like the page. And if you're a user of iTunes, please consider leaving us an honest review in the iTunes store. And come back next week. Like I said, Scott Morris and I are going to break down a 1959 monster film. And we'll try not to get wet while we do it. Okay, that's the last 10. That's the last 10. Thank you for listening. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>